Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Seeing your father stripped of his land, estates, titles, and being thrown into prison would not be an easy start in life for anyone. And should your family, once one of the most powerful in England, fall from grace, your life would perhaps be harder still because you had started from that position of privilege. If you should go on to become rather hardened, selfish, arrogant even, we might say this was a certain degree of self-preservation. But Thomas Howard, third Duke of Norfolk, does rather stretch our sympathies, and he certainly hasn't tended to be treated with sympathy or kindness by the annals of history. Instead, this uncle of not one but two wives to Henry VIII is largely vilified. If the experiences of his young life were not enough to forgive him for his behaviour, what did he do to become regarded as one of the Tudor century's most unpleasant characters? And can we at all rescue him from this infamous Hall of Fame? To unpick this complex man, I'm delighted to welcome historian, archaeologist and broadcast journalist Robert Hutchinson, OBE, and Fellow of the Society of Antiquaries. Robert has written several books on the history of the Tudors, including Thomas Cromwell, The Rise and Fall of Henry VIII's Most Notorious Minister, Elizabeth's Spymaster, and House of Treason, The Fatal Pride and Ambition of the Powerful Tudor Dynasty, 1485-1595. to which is the one we'll be talking about today. Robert, it is delightful to see you again. And I am very much looking forward to talking with you about one of the most important people at Henry VIII's court. He must be the third Duke. I'm so pleased about that because there's so many Thomas Howards in the 16th century Howard family. Doing a podcast about them all would be very confusing. Absolutely. As you say, there are an awful lot of Howards in the Tudor century, and many of them are called Thomas. So perhaps you can start by giving us some sense of the family tree and where exactly 
Thomas Howard, who becomes third Duke of Norfolk, sat within it. Well, the family goes back to 1308. They come from a little village near King's Lane called East Winch. And the Howards are always very good at making very advantageous marriages. And 1420, one of the Howards married one of the Mowbrays and was the Duke of Norfolk then. Well, when he died, she became the heir and Richard III made Sir John Howard Duke of Norfolk because of his support. He died at Bosworth. His son was badly wounded. His son was the father of Thomas Howard III, Duke of Norfolk. Distinguished himself at Flodden and got the dukedom back. And Thomas Howard Jr. became Earl of Surrey. And when his father died, he became the third duke. Now, we're talking about one of the richest men in England with an income in today's prices of about three million pounds a year. But he also was unbelievably ambitious, like the rest of the Howards, and very intent on furthering his status and his wealth. And he didn't care who he trod on to achieve that, including members of his own family. He was very happy to shock them to save his own skin on several occasions. Do you think that in terms of his character, the challenges of his young life were formative? The Howards were completely blown away by years in the Tower of London, the loss of their lands, the loss of their titles, the loss of their status, and they crawled back inch by inch, up that aristocratic pole of a favour with uh, Henry VIII and Henry VII. And so I think he realised that he needed to build himself a firm base at court to defend himself against that kind of thing ever happening again. Because I think that sense of being removed from power and then essentially held hostage when his father went north, having been released by Henry VII, must surely have been formative. But I suppose on the other side, we have a sense that when he's a young man and supports his father's fighting the Scots and gains his knighthood for doing so, that also seems to have been a spur to his ambition. It wasn't enough for him. And I wonder if you have a sense of what was driving him, that kind of competitive streak, perhaps, with his younger brother? I think that's true. And I think we also have to remember the Howards were, up to the 1570s, called themselves right, high and mighty princes. They had this overweening pride. The fourth duke boasted that his income was better than Scotland's. And when he was inside his indoor tennis court in Dorish, he thought himself the equal of kings. And this vein of pride runs through all the Howards, but particularly the third duke. And they were arrogant, but they were one of the last families, the over-mighty nobles of the Middle Ages, who still ran the feudal system. So if you were a bondman of the third duke of Norfolk and you wanted to move house, you'd have to pay a fine. Or if your daughter wanted to get married, you had to pay a fine. And the duke of Norfolk fondly referred to these bondmen as my own folk. It's rather cosy, but it's still feudal. It's still a sign that he's living in the Middle Ages as one of the aristocracy. And he doesn't like these new people coming up, these self-made men like Thomas Cromwell, like Wolsey. That's anathema to him. He feels 
threatened by them. So if we think about the 15 teens, when Thomas's father was reinstated as Duke of Norfolk, and then, as you said, Thomas became the Earl of Surrey, this doesn't completely secure the family's position, in his view, because there is a new man at court in the form of Thomas Wolsey. And this is a kind of provocation for Thomas Howard, isn't it? Well, it is. And Henry bringing in these talented young people, many of whom, like Cromwell, had radical religious beliefs. This was a threat to the order of things. Now, Howard's always believed in supporting the sovereign, but when the king went too far, they would move to try and change factors to persuade him or dissuade him from doing silly things. It didn't always work. Howard Henry has been silly, it never worked. But that's how the third duke was always constantly under threat by society changing around him, court changing around him, and he was happy to join in these dark corner intrigues which were going on. And that's why he played a major role in bringing down Wolsey and played a major role in bringing down Cromwell. So in the early 1520s, he seems to be doing pretty well. He's been given the post of Warden General of the Scottish Marches, the Lieutenant General of the English Army against Scotland. And then in 1524, his father dies, age 81, and he is the new Duke of Norfolk. So I'm going to call him Norfolk from now on. And at the funeral of his father, it was said the Lion of the tribe of Judah had triumphed. So there's a sense that the expectation on the new Duke to lead the family successfully must have been considerable. I think that's right. They still yearned for greater power. I mean, that's why we have Anne Boleyn and later on Catherine Howard. This was to buy greater influence at court to protect themselves against any kind of threat and at the same time enhance their wealth, the position of members of the family in the court and safeguard them against any threats from anybody else. So let's go then to the fall of Thomas Wolsey. Let's talk about the role that you think Norfolk played. How much of Wolsey's arrest was about what Norfolk felt had been done to him and his family? And how much, of course, was it due to what Wolsey had failed to do <laughs> for Henry and Anne? I think it wasn't just Norfolk, it was Suffolk as well. But... I'm sure that Norfolk felt that Woolsey had brought down Buckingham, and so he thought, I'm next on the list. It's either him or me, it certainly ain't going to be me. So I think he, he played quite a large part in Woolsey's downfall. He wrote this amazing bill of attainder against Woolsey, which claimed, for example, that he had infected Henry with syphilis by whispering in his ear. And even that bill of attainder was passed by the Lords, but the Collins thought it was rather intemperate in this language, and they abandoned the bill because they didn't think they were going to get it through. So Woolsey came up with plan B, was to banish Woolsey as far as he possibly could, and he had a conversation with Cromwell about this, and I think it shows him in his true light. He was short and wiry, but beneath that cordial exterior lurked a violent temper, cold brutality, and single-minded determination, he ordered Cromwell to tell Wolsey that if he doesn't go away shortly, I shall tear him with my teeth. That's what he's like. He doesn't tolerate anybody 
gainsaying. I mean, rather like Henry, if someone starts arguing with Henry, they're dead men walking. And that indeed does seem to be the picture we get from the 1530s. We'll have a look at it, each of the incidents in turn. But overall, it feels to me that we see a significant amount of selfishness <laughs> from Norfolk in this decade. Is that fair? Well, I think so. In all the furore about Catherine Howard's alleged affairs, all the Howards are arrested and thrown into the tower. They actually ran out of accommodation and they couldn't find the key for the extra rooms. Norfolk writes to Henry a long, scribbled letter, no drafting, it's coming straight from the heart, prostrate and most humble on his knees. He tells Henry this has got nothing to do with him. Okay, all his family are locked up. But they behaved terribly, and he was the one who tipped off Henry that they were misbehaving. So he's trying to keep himself out of trouble. And that particular time, he tells one of the ambassadors that he wished Catherine Howes was burned. He's quite happy to turn his back on his family to save his own skin. So the first of these, of course, is Anne Boleyn, his niece, who has become queen And you note that Norfolk found it difficult to manage Anne at times. She was quite a force of nature. But do you think he ever foresaw having to arrange a commission to find fault in her character? When do you think he knew the writing was on the wall and rather than defending her, became one of the men who sentenced her to death? Well, there's a famous account of Henry walking out on Queen Anne Boleyn after a furious row in her apartments, where she used words against him, which a witness said shouldn't be used against a dog. And he lost his temper and used unfortunate words, calling her the great whore. Family ties meant nothing then. This was an attack on him as the most powerful man in England, apart from the king. And I think that was a moment where he realised that Anne Boleyn had to go. And as you say, he had led the commission to investigate her wrongdoings. And in his interrogation, he clearly was enjoying himself. And he was nodding his head bravely and warning her that she actually had no chance of survival and tut-tutting in mock despair when he came out with those awful words. The irony is when Jane Seymour became queen, Norfolk's influence at court must have waned. What did he do to mitigate this? Well, he is up against the Seymours, again, more upstarts, and he carries on in his own inimitable way. He had a complete lack of sensitivity. I mean, when Jane Seymour finally died after giving birth to Henry's much-wanted son and heir, a matter of days afterwards, he's walking with Henry in the garden of the palace and says, well, now, sorry about that. Queen dying. Now, what about the monastery at Lewis? I think you should give it to me. And Henry's very distracted and says, well, as you desire. But I mean, that doesn't show great sensitivity. And that's the way Norfolk was. Once he was knocked down, he would always build himself back, even though the Seymours now had the trump card. They have divided the son and heir. And later on, of course, they realized that they really had to get rid of him and the Howard influence at court. Otherwise, the Regency government, the nine-year-old Prince Edward, would be complete chaos, and they wanted to rule the roost. 
And that's why Surrey was arrested on trumped-up charges, and so was Norfolk. And it's rather ironic, that unbelievably dramatic scene when Cromwell was arrested and they stripped off his garter insignia. That happened to Norfolk when he got back to London after hearing that his son had been arrested. They did the same to him and took him off by a boat on a one-way ticket to the Tower. Before we get there, and one thing we perhaps ought to have mentioned even before Jane Seymour became Queen, is Norfolk's relationship with Henry's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. Do you think he used Fitzroy? Oh, yes, I think so. Because he knew that, as far as Henry was concerned, if the worst comes to the worst and he doesn't get a legitimate heir, Fitzroy could be King of England as well. That's why he marries off his daughter Mary to Henry Fitzroy when they were too young to cohabit, and in fact never consummated the marriage. But he was trying to have a foot in many camps here, and Henry Fitzroy was a good safeguard, a good plan B for him. And of course, he got into terrible trouble with Henry when Fitzroy died, and he slung the body in the back of a farm cart, covered it with hay. It must have been very malodorous in the summer heat, and carted him off to Norfolk and bury him amongst the Norfolk tombs of Framlingham. Why do you think he did that? Because it seems foolish beyond belief, really. Quite a few of the Howards in the 16th century were not only proud and arrogant, there's also a sort of vein of crass stupidity about some of their decisions. I mean, Norfolk's half-brother, Lord Thomas Howard, falls in love with Lady Margaret Douglas, knowing Henry hadn't got at that stage in 1536, hadn't got a son and heir, and she's heir to the throne because she's the daughter of Henry's sister, Margaret. And you know, what a silly thing to do. So he ends up in the Tower of London, and Lady Margaret also ends up in the Tower of London, and he still writes wonderful poetic love letters to her. There's a copy in the British Library still. But she's persuaded pretty quickly to renounce her love for him and leaves him to rot in the Tower of London. So crass stupidity is also a characteristic, a lack of judgment, I think, more generously, we can put it. Talking of marriages, Thomas's own marriage to Lady Elizabeth Stafford, daughter of the Duke of Buckingham, lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon, was incredibly fraught. He questions her sanity. She speaks publicly about his cruelty. He takes a mistress. Given the character traits that are emerging about Thomas in our discussion today, should we conclude that Elizabeth was the wronged party? And the vitriol that you describe in her letters, which go on for years, was because she had been so abused, including possibly physically. Well, she was a woman wronged. And she never forgave him for taking a happy married life due to spend it with him. And she was a wronged woman in as much that she was a lady in waiting to Catherine of Aragon and was banished from court because of her support for Henry's first queen. And then they had these very public rows in court. And eventually Thomas Howard packed her off to a lonely house in Hertfordshire, which he rented from the Crown. And by this time, he had been carrying on with Bessie Holland, who was the daughter of his steward. And that in itself, for a noble lady like his wife, was hard to stomach because she was dismissed as a child's daughter of no gentle blood, and for eight years, the washerwoman of my nursery. So 
she was incandescent, even more so when Bessie became a lady in waiting to another concubine, Anne Boleyn. So it's pride. And she did maintain that she had been badly handled by the Duke's ladies-in-waiting at Kenning Hall, and she also claimed that he hit her just before the birth of their second child and wrote these long, raging letters, sometimes sadly repetitive, to anyone who would care to listen to her complaints. I always think that one of the nicest downfalls in history is when, much later, when the Duke was in the Tower after Henry's death, Edward VI, a government state, as a gesture of the sovereignty and the suffering, that his wife could visit him in prison. You can imagine after three decades, two decades of misery, the only person he's allowed to see is the woman who hates him and would kill him. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. It's not too great an exaggeration to say that Norfolk was thrilled when Henry called 
upon him to put down the religious rebellion that we now know as the Pilgrimage of Grace. Do you think he was pleased because of the opportunity to get back into Henry's favour, or is it also a chance to get rid of Cromwell, the man who stood between him and the king? Or can we look for his religious motivations here? It's slightly bizarre because here's the Duke of Norfolk, who's one of the first to say, gosh, I'd like a few of these dissolved monasteries for myself. Yet, he probably shared most of the religious and political aims of the northern rebels. And Henry was very wary of appointing him as his general because he feared that once Norfolk was up and running and heading north, he would actually declare for the rebels and become their general. And so he sort of reined him back. He sent him to Norfolk to keep him out of the way. But he realized not only did he not have an army, he didn't have a general. And Norfolk was the only one to hand. And when it came to putting down the rebellion, Norfolk enthusiastically carried out Henry's destruction to reap death and destruction anybody even suspected of being a rebel and hanged more than 200. But that's the Tudor way of doing things. Elizabeth I did the same in 1569. So, yes, he shared the same political and religious ideals as the rebels, dropping the dissolution of the monastery, is getting rid of Cromwell. But I think he was playing a long game here. So whilst he's wreaking revenge on the rebels all over the place, and Scarborough and Doncaster and Carlisle and so on, we have letters between him and the king. Can you tell me a bit more about them? Because the tone of them sometimes a bit surprising. What can we learn about the Duke from them? But the Duke was never a happy general. Everything was somebody else's fault. He didn't have enough troops, he didn't have enough fodder, he didn't have enough food. It's true when they were putting down the northern rebels. It's true when he invaded Scotland in the early 1540s and spent just nine days there, and Henry was furious that he actually hadn't destroyed anything. It's true when he was fighting in northern France in 1545. He's not a happy general, and he's looking for someone to blame the entire time. And that may be an insecurity. The higher you are, the harder you fall. And I think that was the thing which lay behind these insecurities which show up in these letters. Given that Henry appears to keep Norfolk at arm's length, even when he's literally risking his life, it isn't clear why Henry chose Norfolk to be godfather to Prince Edward. Can you explain this? No, I can't. I think it's Henry basically keeping Norfolk quiet. It's difficult to explain the logic behind it. Other than that, it's giving Norfolk the status that he believes he should deserve, knowing that he probably caused more problems if he didn't appoint him a godfather. If you've got your enemy in your tent, you know, why annoy them? Keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Well, 1540 is a great year for Norfolk. Thomas Cromwell falls from power and another one of his nieces is put on the throne. Let's talk about Cromwell's fall first. What's your view on Norfolk's role in this series of events? And is it political? Is it religious? Is it personal? I think it's all three. 
even though he wrote a number of very charming letters to uh, Cromwell in the late 1530s, even offering Cromwell a voluptuous lady, that changed. And Norfolk became very much with Gardner, the leaders of the conservative faction, and his patience with the new learning and these upstarts ran out. And when Cromwell was ennobled, I think that was the last straw as far as Norfolk was concerned, because he was seeing Cromwell equating himself with him in terms of status and aristocracy, and thoroughly undeserved. So he had to go. And Norfolk took great pleasure in the way that Cromwell fell. That dramatic scene in the Palace of Westminster when Cromwell arrived late for a council meeting and looked around for a seat to sit at around the table. And Norfolk told him, don't sit there. Traitors don't sit amongst gentlemen. And then ripped off his insignia. And all the rest of the council were thumping on the table, crying, traitor, traitor, traitor. And Norfolk had lined up the captain of the guard to come then. And Norfolk also planted the various letters which which seemed to accuse Cromwell of various misdeeds and various plans to get even greater power than the king. And he and Gardner together wrote the indictment, and it was pretty damning stuff, all aimed at Henry's insecurities and Henry's fears and vulnerabilities. So it was clever stuff. And, of course, Norfolk was also... They might organise the execution and deliberately made it as humiliating as possible. Cromwell was going to be beheaded, was beheaded, with uh, Walter Lord Hungerford, who was raving mad and accused of various very nasty crimes. And they hired a very inexperienced headsman, so it took quite a long time, half an hour, according to one witness, to chop off Cromwell's head. Deliberately, I suspect. So we have to imagine that the origin of Cromwell's downfall is with Henry, but that Norfolk is responsible for the theatre and the manner in which it's done. Yes, and I think he was feeling Henry's insecurities by making all these allegations about Cromwell and showing him to be someone who was just too powerful and didn't just have the king's ear. He was now doing things which the king would not like. And Henry is an insecure monarch because he knows his claim to the throne is fairly tenuous anyway, and legally a bit fragile. So he's seeing Norfolk and Gardner, pillars of the aristocracy and of the church, and seeing the power base here, which is probably a better bet than Cromwell, who's now seems to be rather doubtful minister as far as Gardner and Norfolk are painting him. It always seems to me that it's also about what Cromwell failed to do, that he didn't get Henry out of his marriage to Anne of Cleves at the time that he wanted to get out of it. And given that Henry had gone through all of the drama of getting out of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, he just didn't want to go through that again. And it seems the symbolism of the timing of Cromwell's execution and the marriage to Catherine Howard must be significant on the same day. I think that's right. And of course... Norfolk and Gardner lined up another niece, Catherine Howard, to give them greater influence at court. And they probably didn't believe that Henry could actually fall in love with her. The problem with Anna Cleves was Henry's pride was publicly damaged. 
he was absolutely enraged by this. When he realized he couldn't get out of this marriage, there's all these rumors about him boxing from around the ear with his fists. His pride had been seriously damaged. And for Henry, that was the greatest sin that Cromwell could commit. He didn't give him what he wanted. And publicly, he's shown him up to be a man of straw. Now, you say it's an uncomfortable word to use, but that we can say that Catherine Howard was, quote, pimped by the Duke. (laughs) How so? And if this is true, then her downfall in turn must have left him highly vulnerable. I think he did pimp Catherine Howard. The episodes leading up to her marriage were these frequent invitations to Gardner's Palace at Suffolk and soirees at the Howard's house across the river at Lambeth. The new clothes bought for her. It succeeded more than they could possibly have hoped when Henry's roomy old eyes lit upon her and he fell in love with her. And when they married, the amount of jewellery which he bought her was astonishing. Astonishing. And very quickly afterwards, of course, many of the Howards got Johnny and nice jobs at court. So their greatest hopes were fulfilled. And it was tough luck that Catherine's rather promiscuous youth came to the fore. And then the allegations of her adultery with Jerome and Culpepper. And yet, amazingly, Norfolk survives this blow as well. And the 1540s see Henry return to war with Scotland and France and Thomas ready to serve despite being almost 70. He's made Lord Treasurer in 1545, which means, of course, he has to tell Henry there is no war chest to continue fighting. But at the time of Henry's death in January 1547, Norfolk is not in the position he would have wanted to be. Now, I think we have slightly different interpretations of what happened at the end of 1546. But let's talk about what Norfolk was arrested for and who gave evidence against him. Well, Surrey, who was pretty broke after building this enormous new palace for himself outside Norfolk, William Jackson, his father, refused to help him out. So in early December 1546, Surrey comes to court, Brian sought out a monastery he wanted to acquire to help him out in his financial positions. And Sir Robert Southwell was AMP and another one of the really disreputable Tudors came forward with information that Surrey's loyalty to the king wasn't what it should be. And so Surrey was arrested and clapped into the tower. And Norfolk hastened to London and was immediately arrested himself and taken off to the tower as well. Now, in the end, it came down to obscure, heraldic thing which Surrey had committed, incorporating arms in his heraldry. One part of them, one quarter of them, belonged to his attainted grandfather, Duke of Buckingham. And then he also used the arms of Edward the Confessor. And of course, this was treason. Norfolk wrote this impassioned six-page letter to the council, pleading for the accusations against him. Now, they probably didn't know any of that stage, so they were casting around to try and find some. And it's a wonderful description of insight into his character and into his past. As he wrote, the sort of spectres of his many enemies down the years appeared before him. There was Wolsey who had confessed to me for 14 years. He sought to destroy me. 
and unless he put me out of the way, I should undo him. And Cromwell, who was the most implacable, so when he was eliminating the last survivors of the Plantagenet nobility, I questioned them more strictly about Norfolk's loyalty than anybody else. Then there was his discarded and spurned wife, who rather slyly told him, you're a happy man that your wife knows no her for you, for if she did, she would undo you. And Buckingham had confessed that of all men living, he hated me the most. Even his brother-in-law, Thomas Boleyn, confessed the same and wished he had means to thrust his dagger in him. But the interesting thing about this is he didn't know who his secret enemy was there in the shadows. He didn't know the accusations. He didn't know who had struck him down. It would have been a good guess if it had been the Seymours, but Norfolk couldn't see that in his misery. It's really interesting. Do you think that Norfolk was paranoid, just thought that everybody had hated him? Or is this a piece of rhetoric designed to say, no one likes me, but that doesn't mean that I'm in the wrong? I think it's the latter. Norfolk had this strange kind of mind, which I couldn't see why people didn't like him. He's the most powerful person in the world. He's one of the old nobility. And he's fought long and hard for the Tudor crown. Why shouldn't people like him? And yet, that whole list of people, including his own wife, really wanted to get rid of him. It's mystification in a man who's locked up in the Tower of London, not knowing what his fate is, or indeed, what's alleged against him. In one of the biggest plot twists of Tudor history, Norfolk himself is not executed. <laughs> He lives through Edward's reign under imprisonment, and then when Mary is made queen, he's released from the tower and appointed to the Privy Council. Does she free him because he's a fellow Catholic or for some other reason? I think she sees him as the leading member of the nobility and who suffered long and hard on her behalf. Gartner ended up in the tower in Edward the Sixth Reign as well. So she wanted to make it good for them. But she also wanted to demonstrate to the rest of the nobility that things are back to normal. We've got a Catholic queen, we're going to have Catholicism returned, and how better could it be that the leading members of the Catholic religious faction in Henry's days should be in positions of power? Also, of course, gives Norfolk the chance to get revenge on lots of people by presiding over their child and sentencing him to death. But he doesn't cover himself with glory in the rest of Mary's reign. When in 1554, Kent rises in protest against Mary's plans to marry Philip of Spain, Norfolk is now 81. And remember, the average age life expectancy in the Tudor period is 40. He's again Lieutenant General of the Army and posted off to Kent to sort out the rebels. And when he gets there, half his army desert, and he has to flee the field, leaving eight brass guns, which the insurgents immediately confiscate. And I think he realizes then his life has come to the end of its run, and he retires to Kenning Hall, where he dies on the 5th of August, 1554. His will is fascinating. There's no mention of Bessie Holland, his mistress. There's no mention of his wife and his will. But he does leave a hundred pounds to his lawyer and steward to bring up the child which is in my house, now commonly called Jane Goodman, and it's probably his bastard daughter. He was paying a pension 
who uh, a member of the gentry called Goodman uh, some years beforehand. I suspect this was hush money. His life showed that he was a great survivor, but you've also taught us today that he was arrogant and proud and self-serving. I want to know whether you think we can forgive any of his behaviour as a product of his family history and the events of his life in less fraught and troublesome times. Might he have received a better press or do you think he was rotten to the core? I think he was probably really one of the most unpleasant men in British history. Not only was he quite happy to shop his own family, including his son, sorry, who just before he was coming up for trial, Norfolk, in a confession, said he was guilty to save his own skin. So he's unpleasant, he is self-centred and ruthless. I remember somebody saying to me, if you could have a dinner party with characters from the Tudor period attending, who would you have? And I thought it'd be jolly nice to actually have the Duke of Norfolk and Thomas Cromwell and maybe Stephen Gardner as well. But I think you probably had to search them for weapons before they were allowed engines. Sounds like quite a fiery dinner party, as has been this podcast. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. And those who want to know more about the Howards more generally have got to pick up a copy of House of Treason. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher Esther Arnott, my producer Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. History is full of extraordinary people. The Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.